I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Intercooler podcast is sponsored by JBR Capital, one of the UK's leading car finance specialists. Now, we only partner with like-minded organisations who really understand what it means to be a car enthusiast And JBR Capital is a perfect fit for us. It's run by people who really love cars. And importantly, vehicle finance is all JBR Capital does. That alone is what the company exists to do. So whether you're looking to fund a classic sports car, supercar or hypercar, see what JBR Capital can do for you. And it's not just about very high-end, expensive unobtainium. In fact, the minimum borrowing is £25,000 and the average £80,000. Head to JBR Capital on social media or jbrcapital.com online and tell them the intercooler sent you. Right, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is episode 94 of the podcast. I'm Dan Prosser with Andrew Frankel in person. In person, this time. in the same room. Yeah, it's, it's not very often that we get to do this, is it? Not as often as I'd like. No. Um, but it is good. I think that that would be, do you know, if I'd love to be able to do that every week, if we could find a place, just sit down face to face. I don't know, it just sort of changes the dynamic a little bit. Um, that, anyway, that's a way off, something to work towards. But this week, we're, I think it's quite easy for us, isn't it, to just default to expensive sports cars and supercars yeah and to get distracted by that stuff and motorsport as well which by its very nature is a sort of exclusive um pastime isn't it yeah and we're actually very bad um arbiters of these sorts of things because you know we spend sorry this is saying crass but it's, it's, it's no more or less than the truth we spend a disproportionate amount of our time inexpensive sports cars and supercars um which we could never even dream of affording um and whereas you know most normal enthusiasts you know tend to have to cut their cloth accordingly so yeah it's absolutely right that so this podcast we're going to talk about how to drive the car of your dreams without it breaking the bank yeah how how to drive beyond your means how to own the car that you'd that you aspire to own without having um, endless pots of money, and perhaps also how to own a, a selection, a collection of interesting cars yeah. without being very wealthy. Because if you're clever, there are ways of doing it. Um, but before we get stuck in, I just want to talk about Rally Monte Carlo for a couple of minutes because yesterday 
the brilliant Sebastian Loeb at 47 years old. He's almost 48. Yeah. Um, he won the, the rally on his return to the series. Um, he became the oldest WRC rally winner. Um, duffed up all the youngsters. Yes. <laughs> and it was, it was just brilliant to watch. It was but, very... but his co-driver was even older. Yeah, 50 years old. Yeah. Um, and a woman. Yeah. Isabel Galmiche. So, yeah, the, a new co-driver I think she's the second oldest navigator ever to win a WRC round. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so it's significant for lots and lots of reasons. Yeah. Um, and she's the first w- woman to win a WRC round since 1997 for Pons, Pons again, yeah. the Monte Carlo rally. Um, she's fantastic, actually, um, Galmiche. She, she's a maths teacher. I haven't seen her interviews. Is she, is she quite sparky? I, I don't know, actually. But just knowing what I do know about her, I, I respect her enormously. Of course. So she's a maths teacher. She's never competed at this level before. No. Done lots of domestic co-driving, domestic level co-driving in France. Um, but she got called up to sit next to Seb, Seb the gr- brilliant Seb Loeb, on the world's most famous rally. Yeah. Um, and she won the thing. And if I was her, I'd never do another WRC <laughs> round again. <laughs> it, it is one of those sort of events, isn't it? You know, the, 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 they've been dotted out about through the history of motorsport where you look back and think, did that really happen? Yeah. Could this old bloke who's been out of it for so long, you know, a few days after doing, doing the Dakar of all things in a car yeah. that he's barely tested with a co-driver who's never done a WRC round. Yeah. And everybody's thinking, oh, in a, in a type of car he's never been in before, from a manufacturer he's never driven from before. And just comes in and just beats the lot of them. I mean, I know Ogier was unlucky with the puncture. Um, yeah. And without that, it would have been... But then he, he did his, his jump start, didn't he? So, you know, the pressure got to him. And, mm. um, yeah, I mean, you know, you win any way you can. It's what, it's, it's just one of, I think it's just one of the great motorsport stories. It is. We'll reflect on it and just think it was an extraordinary weekend. Yeah, on Ogier, I mean, he's, he's a phenomenon as well. You know, between them, they are the greatest of all time. You can have the debate about which one is the true goat. I know you don't like that phrase. Um, but It's he, got to be low because he's done it across different disciplines, hasn't he? Over a greater period of time. Yeah, he has. And he, he more than anyone, changed, um, changed rallying at that level for good. He, yeah. You know, the, the driving style that would win. Um, it was, there were others who were doing something similar beforehand, but really it was Loeb who, who changed it. Um, but so Ogier was sensational throughout the weekend. Um, he did get a puncture on the penultimate stage, which cost him the rally. Um, it's unfortunate, perhaps, but actually in rallying, particularly in tarmac rallying, a puncture is less random than it is in circuit racing. You get them because... When you're pushing. When you're pushing and you're taking big cuts. Yeah. So actually, I think he has to accept some responsibility yeah, for enough. it. fair play. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it was an amazing weekend because it was the start for, well, for many reasons, but also because it was the start of this new rally one era hybrid cars. Um, and we weren't sure what they were going to be like. They have up to 500 horsepower now, maybe a bit more. So they are as powerful as the group B cars of the eighties. Um, yeah. but they're more complicated. They're heavier. They have less aero than they had before. They have less suspension travel than they have before. So I think lots of people were concerned about what they were going to look like as a spectacle. Um, for me, a lot of the footage I saw was really impressive to watch. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I think the, my only regret is that we had this 
tantalising battle between these two titans of the sport. I think um, I know what you're going to say. And that's it. They're not competing exactly. for the rest of the year. Exactly. So, that's the point. Can you imagine, you know, Lewis and Max square up against each other, yeah. and, and, but they're just actually a couple of part-timers. Yeah. So it's, you know, one rally is fantastic. But imagine if those two were going <laughs> hammer on tongs for the entire season. Well, it'd be like F1 last year, wouldn't it? It just would. And that's two, what you get, you know, yeah. and, and, and you build, hopefully, to this nail-biting climax. And we're not going to have any. It's one of those, it's like a sort of tantalising glimpse. It's, like, it's almost like sort of, you know, this is what you're missing, guys. Yeah, it's such a tease, isn't it? Yeah. And the, I suppose the issue for me, and I know the Monty is a very specialised event, and these two guys, Loeb and Ogier, have won it um, eight times apiece, uh, which is just staggering, really. Um, but even so, between them, they, they really did make all the other drivers look a little bit silly. Um, Elvin Evans was perhaps the only one who appeared to be on the pace, but he made his mistake and and went off. Yeah. Um, and Craig Breen deserves a mention because he brought it home third, a brilliant podium. But the others, I mean, perhaps they'll find some form in the next round or later on. But I just really hope that we get the sense throughout the rest of this year that whoever turns out to be champion, because it will not be Loeb and it will not be Ogier, I hope we get the sense that they are a deserving champion. Yeah. But and, and you haven't got people just going, yeah. well, actually... If either of the Sebs had been there, mm. this would have been very different. Mm. Um, but it seems that that is going to be the case, isn't it? It does seem that way. But, but only after you know, only after the, the weekend we've just had. I mean, if mm. they'd come in, I don't know, fourth and eighth, then you know, it would be absolutely fine. But yeah. because they have just, frankly, shown everybody else in the sport to be not as good as them, mm. and they're not hanging about there's always going to be an unfavourable comparison. And it may well be there are circumstances, maybe somebody made the wrong tyre choice, maybe there are any number of other competitors or you know, just need a bit more time in that kind of car or aren't particularly suited to the Monte Carlo. There are any, sort, any sorts of reasons why you know, it's a completely unfair comparison to make. And over the course of the ceiling season, maybe you know, Elvin or Breen or, or, or anybody could really have challenged Ogier or Loeb. But you can only go with what you know. Yeah. And what we know is that Ogier and Loeb just... Ran away with it. Didn't yeah, they, they did. Um, and I want to just just um, mention M Sport here. M Sport Ford um, with the new Puma. We we look at that and we go, well, it's actually not a full works team. It's got support or the backing of Ford Performance, but it's not a full works team at all. Not in the way that Hyundai and Toyota are. Um, and so it's easier to sort of assume that they are minnows in that world. Um, and I'm sure they don't have anything like the budget. I'm sure they don't have the same headcount or um, resource. However, they do seem to have built the best car. And they are able to do this consistently. When new regulations come along, they get off to a flying start with their new car. And I've been thinking about this a lot. Why might that be? And for me, it's purpose. It ultimately comes down they to They don't do purpose. anything else, do they? Exactly. So Hyundai and Toyota, okay, I know... Actually, they are professional rally teams. They're properly set up to build and develop rally cars. But ultimately, they're there to market the road cars. It's a marketing exercise. Yeah. And manufacturers switch those on and off just like that, don't they? So they don't know that they're going to be there in five years or in ten years yeah. doing the same thing. M Sport exists for one purpose. And the strange thing is, that always used to make the difference in Formula One, didn't it? When you had Williams and McLaren winning yeah. everything. 
Um, but now, and I guess this is just the money, isn't it? Now you have mainstream car manufacturers and fizzy drinks manufacturers um, who are there to sell cars or fizzy drinks, um, just outgunning everybody else. But rallying hasn't got to that stage yet. You know, rallying has got to the stage where the team that exists purely to compete in the mm. way that McLaren and Williams, in fact, even Ferrari when it was founded, were founded purely to compete. Um, you know, in rallying you can still do it, but in Formula mm. One, that formula doesn't apply anymore. It used to. There's a sort of purity to it, yeah. isn't there, that I quite like. Uh, okay, let's move on. Let's talk about driving beyond your means or yeah. owning cars that, in theory, should be beyond your reach. Yeah. Um, what we're not going to do is talk about how to make money out of cars. No, because it's a mistake, isn't it? Because if you try Huge. to make money out of cars, certainly, well, no, 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 I've never done it. But I certainly know any number of examples of people who thought, oh, that's, a, that's a going to be a surefire winner. Mm. And so what happens is you end up buying a car for the wrong reason. And that's, that's going to cloud your judgment and make it much more likely you're going to make the wrong call. And you're absolutely right. I think, so the first thing to do, obviously don't buy a car which you know is going to, you know, depreciate like a bomb but the first thing to do is buy the car you want to buy buy a car because you really love it and you want to drive it mm. and what you'll find is probably that if you love it and you really, really really want to drive it other people will feel the same way and it is that in the long term which will ensure that the, your car retains its value um yeah and also if you buy a car expecting to make money on it or specifically to make money on it you're not going to use it no you're not going to drive it no. you're not going to enjoy it and then it just sits in your garage and it's a worry. Yeah. It's totally the wrong way to approach it. And every it. time you do use it, because, you, you know, maybe, I don't know, you sort of feel you should take it out once, twice a year, then you're just going to worry about it wherever you leave it and you don't want the miles on the clock. And it just, beca- it just becomes a sort of millstone around your neck. Uh, mm. It almost stops being a car, doesn't it? It just becomes an investment mm. vehicle. Ha ha. No mm. pun intended. Um, and that's no way for people who listen to this podcast to go you know indulging their passion is it no it's not so what what's the key to this then i mean the biggest cost in motoring particularly if you're buying a new car is depreciation loss of value yeah you buy a car you own it for three years and if it's a brand new car you could lose half the value and And even even if you're buying a car on a finance arrangement a pcp or hp you're still covering that cost Someone has to. You're still covering the and cost of And you'll end up paying more for it over three years than you would do if you'd been able to, to buy it outright. Can I just say a couple of that? I think the first thing I would say is the cars that I have enjoyed, I may be saying this because I can't afford to buy really expensive cars, but the enjoyment I have derived from the cars that I have owned, and I have owned some quite expensive cars, um, bears very little relation. The, pr- the, the price bears very little re- relation to the amount I've enjoyed them. Yeah. I mean, people will be sick to get death of, you know, me um, and Harris banging on about two CVs. But <laughs> um, we only do it because we love them and we love driving them. And I've had more fun. You know, I had a 1950s Aston Martin once, um, which today, sadly not when I sold it, but today is a very valuable car. I've had 20 times more fun out of my 1950s you know, tin snail citron than I ever had out of my 1950s Aston Martin. So I think that's the first point to make. Don't mistake, don't, don't just think that a car to be fun has to be expensive uh, or out of your league. I mean, mm-hmm. there are all sorts of cars. You know, at, at the very bottom level for a, you know, for a, you know, a grand 1500 quid, you can go and buy a knackered old MX-5 and knock about in it and, and you'll have an awful lot more fun than most people do in, you know, very expensive modern cars. So that's one point to make. And then it's all about 
finding the right car, isn't it? The right car for you and avoiding some fairly simple errors. Yeah. Um, like not buying. And, and, and one rule, which will seem contradictory, but it's not. But one rule I've always tried to abide by is expensive cars are cheap cars and cheap cars are expensive cars. By which I mean, it doesn't really matter what you're looking to buy. Um, let's say it's a, I don't know, a, a, a 1970s 911, 911 SC or something like that. And you find a couple of cars and one is really quite affordable and the other is, you know, a bit out of your price range because it's done fewer miles, it's had fewer owners, it ha- it's had less of a life. Um, in the long run, if you use these cars properly, it's almost always the car you pay more for, which will end up costing less in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, because you won't always be chasing your tail, you won't always be patching it up, you won't always be being, be being let down by it. Um, so my advice would be, decide what kind of car you want to buy and you can afford to buy and then just get the best possible one because certainly if you buy a basket case with a view to restoring it by the time you've done it a you'll have spent much less time driving it because you'll have spent all that time restoring it and b you'll have spent you will just have spent more money restoring it than you would ever have spent if you'd bought that car restored at a higher price so very important point the most expensive cars are often the cheapest and vice versa yeah god that's really interesting it's a very good point i'm glad you mentioned 1500 quid mx5s because yeah you're right the whole point of this is that you don't need to be a wealthy individual or spend lots of money um, to get your kicks and an mx5 is a brilliant example because they're not going to depreciate if you stick 1500 quid into the right mx5 yeah. And there are no guarantees. Okay, we do, do have to caveat this slightly. There are no guarantees, but it's very unlikely to depreciate. And actually, I suspect a, a good early MX-5, um, 1,500 quid probably isn't going to buy you an original one anymore um, because the, I think they've gone. Yeah. But I suspect the second generation cars um, will look after you very nicely indeed. So th- if you think about, yeah, let's say you're sticking 2,000 pounds, 3,000 pounds into an MX-5, um, it's going to be worth that. And don't write to me when you buy one, sell it three years later, and it's worth less. But <laughs> I would be very confident that it's worth that. And so by choosing the right car at the right time, you're not paying depreciation. You're getting rid of that loss of value that costs an awful lot of money um, when, if you buy any number of other cars. You know, if you buy a brand new car unless you get very lucky and you've offered a 911 GT3 or whatever, buy a brand new car, it's going to lose a load of value. Buy a nearly new car, if it's a, I don't know, a Golf GTI, it's going to lose a load of value. Yeah. Um, but buy the right car and it will hold its value and therefore your costs of motoring have been slashed. Because and depreciation are, is such a, for most people, depreciation is so far and away the biggest component, cost yeah. component, that frankly everything else, your running costs, are yeah. you know, combined your maintenance costs, your running costs, they, they are not quite immaterial, but they're very small beer by comparison, aren't they? Um, and so if you can remove the depreciation mm. from it, um, then you've, got, you've already got such a cheap car, which means you probably can afford to maintain it properly, which means it probably will go wrong less often, um, which means you probably will use it more, which means you will enjoy it more. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, I've, I've been looking back, and I have had a couple of disasters. The Aston Martin wasn't good. Um, the absolute disaster was my beautiful huh? 993 <laughs> Carrera RS. Um, oh dear. Do, not, should, we, should we pause for a moment or do you want to carry on? 
well, a, a, a moment of yeah, reflection. Reflection on just what a total idiot <laughs> I was. Well, I wasn't actually because you know my first child had turned had turned up, and you know there there were good reasons at the time. But I think what that car is worth now compared to what I sold it for, and I just actually, but the, even that, <laughs> I don't think I lost any money on it. Good work. There you go. You're proving the concept. Even that, I don't think I lost any money on it. I think I got my money back. I probably, ha- I probably only had the car for a couple of years, but I probably net had a free car because I think I probably sold it for a little bit more than I bought it and for. There you go. That's the point. And you know, and I went to the Nurburgring and back in that three times, and you know, I had a, I had a whole stack of fun. So it can work even at that. But I know it's only a disaster in my head because I now know what they're, I know what they're worth today, and that's uh, that is quite painful. But uh, <laughs> but there you go. You used that term, didn't you? Free motoring or free car. Get it right, and these yeah. things—it's I mean, brilliant. That's exactly the point. I mean, imagine somebody came up to you and said, I mean, let's, "Let's think of another example." Um, and somebody came up to you and said, "Here's a really nice 1.9 Peugeot 205 GTI. Uh, have it for five years, and then give it back, and uh, we'll look after all your running costs. And at the end of it, there'll be no charge. It's a free car." Mm. Well, I had exactly that experience. Brilliant. Exactly that experience. I had. Well, I had I think I had it for six or seven years, and it's well, I was, I was very I was very lucky um, because um, there were a few people who wanted it, and so it, it, I actually made a bit of money on that. But generally speaking, um, in all normal circumstances, that would have been a free car, um, and I, and and I think it was that way because it's obviously a kind of car that is desirable, um, and I bought the best one I could afford, and so. You know, and, and, and ultimately, that's what people always revert to, don't they? Uh, whatever the market does, people always pay a little bit more for the, for the good ones, and, and rightly so. Yeah. So did, did you, when you bought the car, were you thinking this is going to hold its value? This, this might work out for me. It might creep up in value. Or did you just want a great 205 GTI and the time was right? I think you have to consider all of it. I mean, okay, would I have bought it if I thought it was going to fall out of bed? No, I probably no. I, w- I wouldn't have done because I wouldn't have wanted to lose the money. If it was a fifteen hundred quid MX five, I'd probably have cared less because I would have thought, well, you know, whatever happens to it in percentage terms, it, you know, the sums of money aren't that great, and so it hasn't got that far to fall. But the Peugeot was quite a lot more expensive than that, um, and so I would never have bought it if I didn't think there was wasn't at least a good chance of it holding its value. Mm. I didn't want to lose money on it. But there's a big difference between buying a car and being quite careful to ensure as far as possible it doesn't, you know, take the shirt off your back and then buying a car because you think that's a yeah. a way of making money. I never did that. I bought it because I loved the car. Um, I'd had one when I was young and stupid in the city um, and it was kind of like a sort of, sort of slight, slightly sad, um, you know, retro middle-aged thing. And I just wanted to have that experience again. And actually, unlike most of the cars that I drove back then driving it again now it didn't disappoint at all and it was a lovely thing and i just loved driving it um and i only sold it for the same reason i sold all my you know slightly faster cars is because you know i just didn't use it not nearly enough because of the job that i have but nothing about the car yeah um and it was well as i said i made a bit of money on it but even if i hadn't done it, it would have been an absolutely free car and you think hmm. all the fun you have for nothing it's amazing, isn't it? It's and it, amazing, and, and it can be done. And you don't have to be, you know, a motoring journalist, and you know, and it may be that you get a bit more money because somebody's heard your name. You know, anybody can go out and buy, if they are careful, a really nice, fun, affordable car 
with the realistic expectation that if they are sensible in what they buy and how they use it, that over whatever period of time they own it, at the end of it, they will have retained a huge chunk of its value, if not maintained it completely, if not actually made a bit of money out of it. Let's give a couple of examples then. I've been digging around a little bit. Um, And one, and we're not necessarily talking classic cars or 70s, 80s cars. There is plenty of much more modern machines that I think will look after you. Um, One good example is the BMW E46 M3. Definitely. Probably the best M3, do we think? E30. Ethos. Well, no, actually, for the money, for the money, yeah. no question, E46. So it, it, a few years ago, um, 10 grand would get you in an E46 M3. Um, now I think you need sort of 13, 14 as a minimum. But if you want a nice one, you are looking at closer to 20. And actually, it's very easy to drop 30 on a, a very low mileage car. But let's call it 16, 17,000. They have been, values have been steadily rising on those cars. Um, and so stick in 16, 17,000 pounds. There's a very good chance, I think, that it's going to hold on to that value. And so you can be knocking about in a brilliant modern performance car with a great engine, good chassis, fantastic looks, fun to drive. Mm. And it will only cost you maintenance. If it rises a little bit in value, you're offsetting some of that maintenance. And so you're getting close to that free motoring mm. nirvana, that holy yeah. grail. Um, it's, it's just so tantalizing. You need a little bit of capital to put in, I suppose, yeah. to make it work. But and, and you have to buy the right car, don't you? And particularly yeah. things like E46s, which... And this is a problem with all cars that are appreciating, but which had a period in their time when they really weren't very worth very much at all. Because yeah. they get neglected. Yeah. Um, and you know these cars tend to all polish up quite well, so you just need to be really careful about checking it out. Um, you know, also with something like an E46, I'd be worried about how much time it has spent on track. I mean, not that I'd be worried about the engine blowing up, but I would be worried about maybe the suspension being bent because it's been up a few curbs. I'd be worried about crash damage. I mean, anything which might affect my enjoyment of the car or its or its future saleability. Um, another point I would like to make is mileage is really, really important. And there's a balance to strike here because obviously if you buy a really, really leggy car, even if it's good, um, that is going to affect its ability to maintain its value. It'll certainly affect its ability to appreciate. Um, so, you know, you probably, people wanting to buy cars, which are really going to look after them, probably want to be careful about that. At the same time, if you buy a car, which has done very few miles two things firstly if a car's done very few miles it hasn't used been, been been used very much that can be a whole world of pain all by itself because as we all know there's nothing that cars like less than not being used and things perish and they seize up and particularly if you have a car which has no hasn't had a particularly busy life but then it goes and has a busy life um then that's when problems often turn up and also if you bought a really low mileage car, are you going to want it to have a very busy life? Because that'll turn it into a not hmm. very low mileage. And the very th- reason that it was so expensive um, when you bought it goes away. You yeah. know, and you put lots of miles on it. And then you know, that will be an example of how a classic car could depreciate. So you've got to get the balance right, haven't you? you want like, hmm. To me, you want a car, a good used car in great condition that hasn't done a million miles. But I'd not be... 
in any way, and I never have looked for cars with particularly unusually low mileages because I know that they can be a world of pain too. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting when we're having this discussion to sort of compare a brand new car to a slightly older car and just have a think about how the financials might work. So let's take as a brand new car, uh, Golf R. Yeah. And once you spec it a little bit, that's probably low £40,000. Um, what's that going to cost you? So you might put eight grand in on a PCP. You might be paying 400 a month, something like that, I would guess. I don't know. I haven't actually looked at the numbers. But that actually is a significant outlay. Yeah. Um, and it's very interesting to have a think about how else you might use that money. And there are any number of 911s that are likely to hold on to their value, perhaps even creep up. But a second-generation 997 with the later, more reliable engine is a good a good bet. And I think Golf R money is probably about right. Mid-low 40s, maybe very high 30s. That's yeah, fascinating, isn't it? So the Golf R is going to shed a load of money because it's a brand-new car. Yeah. The 911... Isn't. Isn't. No. It's... Even though it's... As long as you get a manual rear drive coupe. Well, yeah, get the right one. <laughs> yeah. and, and it will look after you. Yeah. Um, should. It should. I think we have to be really careful we saying do. things like will. No, no um, promises. We have no reason to think that it won't. It um, sh- but don't sue us if you go and buy a car and don't come back and say, well, you know, process it, it'd be all right. Yeah. It should look after you. Yes. And the difference is you're driving not a turbocharged four-wheel drive hot hatch. You're driving one of the great sports cars. One of the great sports cars. Imagine that. Imagine using one of the great sports cars every day it's fantastic isn't it and what what they say about 911s is that and actually any Porsche from that era you need to be setting aside a decent amount of money for maintenance because they do cost a few quid to keep them going yeah and you don't want to scrimp on that maintenance because that's how you end up with a big bill or a car that's not worth a great deal um but it's i just find it so compelling that if you can choose the right car that probably isn't going to depreciate this whole world opens up in front of you, um, and you can you could find yourself driving something much more exotic or much more exciting than you otherwise imagined. Now it is just worth being sort of grown ups about this, and I know you have been throughout this podcast actually. But there are there's a sort of reality check, isn't there, that we have to do? Um, and you've mentioned it already. If you do lots and lots of miles, this might not work for you. If you're commuting 100 or 200 miles every day. You probably yeah, are but, putting... But, but that's probably not most people looking to buy a sort of classic type car. Probably not. Um, and if you, are going, if, if you are going to do that, I'd buy one actually that's already done a load of miles because yeah. you know, the more miles it's done, you know, the less depreciation there is going to be. I think the other thing, being sort of practical and sensible, and I do actually think about this quite a lot uh, and try to do it as much as I can myself, is once you've got the car... Um, Obviously, look after it, but look after it in a way that can be. You always think about, you know, whatever car you own. Some someday somebody else is going to own it. Unless you scrap it, it, one day it will pass on to somebody else, and so that means you're going to have to sell it, or someone's going to have to sell it. Um, and you just want the car, them to be able to see very easily that the car has been mm. looked after, and you know the, that can be as simple as just having you know, a smartly presented file with all the invoices, um, with all the date stamps in them, um, and just show just to show that you've been on top of the maintenance. Because, I mean, there, honestly, there have been so many cars which I've gone to look at um, and have seen really nice. And I say, can I see the history? And you get sort of a V5 and the most recent MOT. And you'll go, well, where's the rest of it? Or oh, I don't know, it wasn't with the car when I bought it. 
Well, the thing is, there are, you know, unless you're going to go buy a 250 GTO or something, you're always going to have a choice. Almost whatever it is, there will always be another late 997 Carrera 2. There will always be another 205 GTI. There, you know, there will always be another MX-5. Um, so you don't, that, that you don't have to buy the car you're looking at. So choose carefully. And once you've got it, look after it and also be seen to be looked after it, to have looked after it. Because you can lavish... And this is one of the things that worries me about people who do home maintenance because they never generate any bills. And they may be gifted mm. mechanics. And there are certain lots of people who, you know, in sort of late middle age, you know, who are sort of winding down from work. They love tinkering with their cars. Um, but I would always, you know, look for as much evidence as I could that a car has been really properly cherished and looked after. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd expect that from the person you're buying it from. So there's no reason why you shouldn't provide the same to the person you're selling it to. Mm. Yeah, very true. It's also worth mentioning that if you're buying a brand new car, you'll get a warranty, which is a huge consideration for a lot of people. If it breaks, you just throw it back to your dealer and say, fix that. Yeah. If you're buying a slightly older car, you won't have one of those. You can get aftermarket warranties, but often they won't sell you one they of tend, those. They, they tend to cover the, you know, the things they know aren't going to go wrong, don't yeah, they? Yeah, and you know, if a car's more than 12 years old, they probably aren't going to look at you. Um, but they're, they're out there, aftermarket warranties, and so they can offer you a bit yeah. of But But the thing with an aftermarket warranty is they wouldn't exist if people offering them didn't think they could make money out of them. Yeah, it's true. So it's like healthcare insurance, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's immensely reassuring and it's peace of mind and everything else. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, um, you're going to end up, you know, the average patient is going to end up spending more on healthcare insurance than they ever have spent on them in, in healthcare because otherwise all the healthcare insurance companies mm-hmm. would go bust. Yeah. So, you know, so you, have to, so you have to factor that in. So if you want to do it for a sort of, you know, for the peace of mind, which I completely understand, then fine. But, um, yeah, hmm. it's interesting, isn't it? Okay, well, there's another concept that sort of ties into this whole idea of driving a car that you didn't think you could afford. And that's gathering, building a collection of cars um, while not being a, an especially wealthy individual. And I raise this now because... Um, a TI listener uh, has been in touch, Chris. Actually, he's called at Silken Flanks on social media. Um, and he's worth having a, a follow because he he posts about some of his cars on Instagram. Um, now, this ch- he's, he likes a particular type of car. I'm wondering if you can guess what. He's got a Bentley Arnage R, a Jaguar XJR, and a Merc S600 at the moment. That's punchy from a maintenance point of view, isn't it? You, well, he thinks so. Yeah, I suspect probably it is. Um, he says he, he loves a big, powerful exec saloon. Um, and actually in his letter, his note that he wrote to me, he said that he really enjoys, and this is quite a compelling case actually, he really enjoys owning three comparable cars and driving them one by one and really getting to understand how they're different, mm. you know, through a particular set stretch of road or... Um, you know, how one car rides differently to the other. And actually, it's a good way of sort of benchmarking. And it's what we do in our, in our day jobs, isn't it? Yeah. We compare cars. But, but I, th- I think to him, there would be in a sort of an additional fascinating fascination because we don't really think about it in these terms. But for him, as them being classic cars and driven probably for recreational purposes, there's an insight into the mindset of the engineers who set these things up. And mm. you could think, well, you know, there's a Bentley engineer and or Bentley, there's a Bentley chassis team who really like primary ride control, 
but are happy to let a bit of secondary stuff come through. Whereas mm. the Jaguar, they'd never do that because it's all about you know gliding over yeah. the bumps. And you know if you go over a crest and the car goes a bit like that's a price worth paying. And I, I would find those sorts of decisions, particularly if the cars were comparable in you know size and price and particularly era, um, I'd love to get into all of that. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And he he says um, that his V12 S class. And I would like to know a bit more about the maintenance because, I mean, these cannot be cheap cars to run. But one upside is that insurance on his V12 S-Class for the year cost him 75 quid. I'm not sure how. I'm not sure how it can be so cheap. But I think there's particularly something about classic cars, um, not necessarily the S-Class, but classic cars can be much cheaper to insure, which is oh, something are. something to consider. Yeah. Um, and I suppose one of the advantages of these very expensive executive cars is that they depreciate so fast and so hard from new that only a few years later, they, are, they cost a fraction of what they would have done yeah. several years ago. Yeah. And so that's how you can sort of start gathering a couple of them or three or four of them. Um, and his, the point that he makes ultimately is what's more enjoyable, one traditionally expensive car one brand new sports car for instance or is it more fun to have a handful of older cars that between them have a similar value um, but you've got multiple different driving experiences at your disposal i mean a couple of things there i mean firstly if you've got a few older cars you have also to have somewhere to put them you know, you're not Absolutely really going to be leaving them out. So, so, so that's probably, it's a different kind of investment, isn't it? Or maybe it's a different kind of buyer. But, um, and I know some people are much more relaxed about leaving their cars out in the street. Uh, I mean, I'm not. I just, um, honestly, I, I, I left my Series 3 Land Rover out last night completely by mistake because I'd forgotten I'd, I hadn't put it away. And, I, I, and I, when I realized this morning, I was like, oh, God, it's been a night. I I know it doesn't matter, but I'm just like that. Um, <laughs> But but also the other thing is the more cars you have, and I, you know you and I Dan both know people who have got you know very large numbers of cars. And to me, you always have to keep an eye on what are you going to do with it. Mm. Um, when are you going to drive it? Um, and you know some people like you know like um, RS Driver, who is um, part of what we do, has an amazing uh, assortment of cars, and they all get used. Um, but I know other people who have cars which just get parked for years. And, and, and when that has happened to me, as it has with a few cars that I've owned, and, and, and their role in your life becomes reduced to one of making you feel guilty about seeing them, um, then they're not to have. So I would actually rather have a smaller number of cars, or whatever number it is, that allows you to genuinely use all of them. Yeah. Because otherwise, why have you got them? Mm. Yeah, there you go. I agree with that. that it's a tricky thing for me, having a whole collection of cars that because there are so many some of them just don't turn a wheel I'd, yeah. I'd rather have a slightly more focused fleet um let's leave that one there i think the point of this podcast is that if you're a bit creative and you're prepared to do your research um and be quite diligent about these things there are there's more than just one way of buying and owning a car isn't there you, yeah. don't, you don't have to default to the same old brand new hatchback on a pcp no. you can you if, yeah a little bit of research a little bit of nouse can get you in a truly exciting and interesting car ask yourself why you want it ask yourself 
what are you going to do with it? Then do your research and get the right car. Because so many people, and goodness knows I'm one of them, um, although I'm better now than I used to be, buy these cars um, and they're just controlled by their emotions. Um, and that's not a very good way. You know, letting your heart yeah. buy a car for you is, is, is probably not a very smart thing to do. Um, so, yeah, just, just try. Because you're going to spend the rest of your time with the car, um, hopefully subjectively loving it and just adoring having the thing over there, just in that moment, just before you buy it, just switch that part of you and just look at it objectively and just think, is this the right car for me? Can I look after it? Am I going to use it? Um, and then find the very best example you can afford. Yeah. Words to live by. Um, good. Okay, let's leave that one there. Everybody, please remember to rate and review the podcast. You have been doing it, and it really does make a difference. It means we can find um, an ever bigger audience, which is what we want to do. Um, and also, please remember to go and check out the Inschool app. Download the app. Start your free trial. We think you'll like it. And as ever, we'll be back to talk to you again next week. Look forward to it. Bye. Bye.